0: Welcome to Marvel Moments, the show where we take one scene from a movie or TV show and explore it in depth before using it as a jumping-off point for a discussion of a broader theme in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Usually, we also find time to look at a Stan Lee moment before finishing with a mindful moment in the MCU. Today, however, I thought
1: with Christmas on the horizon, we could do something just a little bit different, James. Oh, really? What movie are we going to look at? I don't seem to have got the email about this episode. Well, James, what if I told you we were going to look at an action movie set at Christmas,
0: where a lone hero, isolated from his usual support network, relies on just his wits and the ad hoc allies he makes along the way to defeat an evil group of terrorists, while trying to reunite with his estranged love interest. And also, in the course of this... He also manages to have a personal
1: epiphany about himself and his situation that radically changes his life. Matt, I'd say it sounds like you were describing the plot of the 1989 Christmas classic Die Hard, only I thought we discussed Marvel movies on this show. I'm fairly sure it's even in the name of the show you just read out.
0: Well, James, what if I were to tell you that Iron Man Free was essentially Die Hard in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, Say, Jarvis, is it that time? The house party protocol, sir. Welcome to the party, pal! So my thought for today's show is that we could discuss Die Hard and Iron Man 3 and how they relate to each other, the similarities and the key differences. Does that sound
1: good? That sounds great. And I think that it'd be fair to say that there will be plenty of spoilers along the way. For both Die Hard and for Iron Man 3. So, James, what's the timestamp for the scene that we're going to look at today? So, the scene from Die Hard starts at around 1 hour 45 minutes and runs till about 1 hour 53 minutes.
0: And basically, for those of you who don't know or might be a bit hazy on this, in the film Die Hard, John McLean, a New York police officer, is visiting his estranged wife, Holly Gennaro, in Los Angeles, where she works at the Nakataomi Plaza. It's the company Christmas party. They're celebrating a successful financial year when a group of dastardly terrorists led by charismatic and handsome Hans Gruber crashes the party and takes everybody hostage. John manages to slip away in the confusion and barefoot, wearing only a tank top and his trousers, he starts to pick off the terrorists one by one With his only contact on the outside being local police officer, LAPD's Sergeant Alt Powell. In this scene, we're coming up to John's just had his first altercation directly with Hans Gruber, where he's had to run across broken glass, leaving his feet shredded and his spirits low.
1: So the scene opens with McLean pulling glass out of his feet because he's just run across the glass, and he's on the radio to Powell. And he's, asked, he's asking to give a message to his wife. He talks about his regret, about how things have been. And he says the best thing that has ever happened to a bum like me, that his wife is the best thing that's happened to a bum like me. Also, in a change from his usual arrogance, he also wants to apologise and asks Powell if he will pass on that message to his wife. I it took me a while to figure out uh, what a jerk i've been but um that
0: that when things started to pan out for her i should have been more supportive
1: and uh i just should have been behind her more <sighs>
0: Tell her that, um, that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that. Uh...
1: The scene carries on to a, an altercation between McLean and another of the uh, terrorists come robbers. Um, and leads on to where Holly and Hans are talking. Up until this point, Holly has been using her maiden name, and it's that point in the film where Hans finally figures out that Holly is married to John.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And if I could just add one detail, the fight that John is in with the terrorist has a personal nature to it because... Earlier in the film, the terrorist's brother was one of the first casualties scored by John in his fight against the terrorists. This one says, we're both professionals. This is personal. So, James, what did you enjoy about this scene?
1: I like how it shows how the characters are developing, the relationships between the characters are developing. So before the film started, McLean and Powell didn't even know each other. And yet, over the course of this, these sort of, over the course of the film, uh, the, that relationship has grown to the point where McLean can ask Powell to do this. I also like how it shows how uh, the development of um, Hans as well, um, how it shows how he's always thinking about things and connecting things up and how clever he is. And even in the scene, he talks about being an exceptional thief and actually him always having a plan always seems, he always seems to be one step ahead of everyone else.
0: Yeah. Um On that point with, with Hans, you know, there is this big reveal that at first it seems like the, the group of criminals are terrorists here to make a political point about the Nakatomi corporations uh, profiteering around the world. But it's revealed that Hans is no longer a terrorist, but he's out for personal gain. And, They've got a plot and when holly realizes this she says after all your fancy speeches you're nothing but a common thief and it's that then when he says that classic line i am an exceptional thief and i have to agree, agree with him and with you he, he's just so very clever he makes him very satisf- satisfying bad guy after all your posturing all your little speeches you're nothing but a common thief. I'm an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. Also, to your point about the relationship between John and Powell developing over the course of the film, I personally enjoy that very much too. John is a a very abrasive character. It comes across in the scene between him and just about anybody he talks to. He's always a bit snarky. He's always a bit dismissive of things like modern technology and kind of social niceties. But Al Powell is right from the very start. He's a very warm and friendly person, even in the little exchange we see with him in the convenience store where the person's been rude to him at the till. He just kind of laughs it off. And so there's that nice dynamic there. And Powell really roots for McLean kind of arguing his case when the deputy chief of police arrives on scene, when the FBI arrives on scene, all these other authorities that um, want to act more like cowboys and just kind of storm the building. Whereas Powell is making a case for John, making a case for the information that he's providing. It's only the second time I've watched this movie, but I I love it so much already.
1: Yeah, and building on that, um, you say in McLean being such an abrasive character, Just this scene is such a a different side to him that he does have a bit of a heart after all. He's not just all abrasion and tough cop.
0: Yeah, it's that vulnerability that he shows to Paul and that hopefully if he survives this, he'll be able to share with his wife and that will hopefully help them rebuild their relationship. I I love that he says, she's heard me say, I love you so many times but she never heard me say, I'm sorry. Uh, And it just strikes me that it's so easy to say, I love you in many ways. I I think the first time can be really hard and nerve wracking, but once you're into the easy pattern of relationship of back and forth, uh, it can almost become just kind of something that rolls off the tongue, uh, something you say to end a conversation on the phone. Um, But to say,
1: I'm sorry, that can be the hardest thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is this sort of strange wisdom. Love means never having to say you're sorry, but I totally disagree with that. It's, uh, it's always having to say you're sorry, in my opinion, In my experience anyway.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there. And I think we're finding our first connection with Iron Man 3, that in Iron Man 3, Tony and Pepper are having romantic difficulties themselves. They've moved in together, but as this is just months after the events of Avengers, where Tony risked his life, flew through a wormhole with a nuclear warhead, uh, encountered new realities, you know, it's really kind of gnawing at him. It's really kind of eating away at him, and it's distracting him. Uh, We'll see in Age of Ultron, quite the length that it will take him to in seeking to protect the world, seeking to protect the people he cares about. But at the same time, it's causing him to pull away from Pepper in the ways where she actually needs him to be present, to be there. And he's trying to cover for that. Perhaps I think one of the great scenes early in the movie is when Pepper pulls up to Tony's house and there is a giant two story high buddy rabbit sat in the driveway, that's his cr- Christmas present. A very expensive, elaborate, kind of grandiose gesture, which is typical of a Stark man, but completely unwanted and unnecessary. There, There's this dis- distance there, and shortly after she's arrived in, in the house and discovered... At first, she thinks he's in the Iron Man suit, greeting her in the living room. And then she goes downstairs to the garage and finds out that he's controlling it remotely. And she really calls him out on all his
1: nonsense. Yeah. And his kind of response to that is also quite showing as well. Like that comparison between the honesty of McLean in Die Hard and then uh, Tony talking about opening up to Pepper. I'm. Um, talking about being a hot mess, a piping hot mess, and acknowledging that nothing has been the same since New York.
0: I'm a piping hot mess. It's been going on for a while. I haven't said anything. Nothing's been the same since New York.
1: Oh, really? I
0: didn't notice that at all. You experience things, and then they're over, and you still can't explain them? Gods, aliens, other dimensions. I'm
1: I'm just a man in a can.
0: And I think, you know, as much as he's been a real jerk, as much as he's been a terrible boyfriend, a terrible partner, you know, that honesty, you know, those are genuine fears, genuine anxieties. He's having an existential crisis. He's having post-traumatic stress flashbacks and it's just there at the heart of what's driving him is that he he says he wants to protect the one thing
1: that he can't live without. He wants to protect her. Yeah, and these sort of anxieties that we have, they can make us do all kinds of strange and unusual things. And actually those things can harm the others that, other people that are around us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if Tony and Pepper had been able to just keep going with that conversation, things might have turned out quite differently. But it, I think it's the same evening that Happy becomes an unfortunate victim of um, the movie's terrorist plot uh, where he gets blown up along with the Chinese theatre in Hollywood. So And that kind of set, sends Tony into a new spiral of thinking he has to deal with this he has to he couldn't protect happy so he's going to protect everybody else he, he's going to seek out revenge eliminate the mandarin
1: yeah and there is this kind of theme running through tony's arc through the whole mcu of kind of protecting other people he kind of in my in my opinion it um kind of starts where he where, when he puts the mark 42 around pepper when the house is being yeah. attacked and it kind of you sort of see that. Um, in the initial idea of putting a protective suit around the world, around the things he he holds dear, it's almost like a mini version of what happens in uh, Age of Ultron.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, and it's such a really cool scene uh, where the house blows apart um, and they both go flying. But yes. C- he puts the arm around her, she protects him, he gets her out of there. It's great. Um, But unfortunately, they get separated in that, and he ends up halfway across the country due to a bit of error of calculation on the part of Jarvis as to what's required. Jarvis is still working off previous orders uh, to take him to Tennessee. And at that point, Tony's assumed dead, His armor has failed because it was just a prototype. He is in the freezing cold snow. Um, He has to steal a poncho from a wooden Indian outside a gas station. And he makes a call to Pepper on the phone. Pepper, it's me. Got a lot of apologies to make and not a lot of time. So first off, I'm so sorry I put you in harm's way. That was selfish and stupid and it won't happen again. Also, it's Christmas time. The rabbit's too big. Done. Sorry. And I'm sorry in advance because
1: I can't come home yet. I need to find this guy. you got to stay safe. That's all I know. I just stole a poncho from a wooden Indian. Yeah, that call between between, uh, Tony and Pepper is so telling as well. It, but between like that, that like, again, it's Tony apologising that he's put her in harm's way. Again, that kind of sharing that theme with Die Hard of that apologising is quite a difficult thing for these strong characters to to do. Um, and it's kind of like it. That really kind of speaks to me about how doesn't usually apologise. These these characters, there's sort of this pressure to to never apologise to be always in the right, and actually, it's quite vulnerable of them. To, to be saying these things. But then at the same time, there underneath that, running underneath that, there is this job that needs to be done. So although John has sent this message via Powell and Tony's made this phone call, there's still something else that needs to be done, another purpose for them that needs to be done first before they can have that reconciliation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to kind of go back to... That abrasiveness of John's, which I think is mirrored in Tony's own abrasiveness. I, I mean, we all, I think we all love Tony, but as Pepper says later in the film, you're a jerk. He, he, he's just a real jerk. He, he, he lacks a lot of social graces. Um, he, he is quite insulting to the people around him, even this, the young kid who helps him. Um, And he's not very politically correct at all. Uh, I think that's another thing that they have in common. But yes, there's a mission there. Um, But I think it converges because unbeknownst to Tony, Pepper is on a collision course with the Mandarin, the villain of the movie as well. And in the end, the fight against Mandarin, the fight against the villainous forces of aim, and the fight to save the president, and the world all converges on this one final battle where tony thinks that he li- thinks that he's lost pepper he watches her seemingly fall to her death and the look of pain and anguish and i guess despair on tony's face is is so moving i i think we all all know from a detached logical point of view that pepper's not dead that she's not going to die. I, I think kind of looking at it, we can make the connection. She's been infected with the extremist virus that can heal and rebuild people. But the look on Robert Downey Jr.'s face as he goes through all the emotions Tony's feeling really sells it to us. Then they have their re- reunion, their reconciliation in the end. And um, I, I like that because the extremist virus causes you to burn, kind of Pepper says, who's the hot mess now? And Tony's like, oh, it, it's debatable. It, it might be like tipping t- more towards you, but still, you know, this is me. I, I'm still a mess. And they start to me- find kind of points of connection again. I think after the trauma, the stress, the violence Pepper has witnessed and been party to, she says, now I can start to understand why you won't give up the suit, um, why it's maybe more than a distraction to you. And I like that bit where she says, What what am I gonna complain about now? And he says, Well, it's me. I'm sure you'll think of something. So he's kind of sticking with that honesty and that humility. What what do you think about what he does next? Cause no, having admitted the giant rabbit was a bad idea, he then says my real Christmas present is a clean slate. And he blows up every single Iron Man suit that he had called in from the house party protocol to help in the fight. And we have this kind of beautiful Christmas or slash new year fireworks display, which are really old Tony's tin cans exploding.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I like the scene in the context of this, this movie. It's kind of like that, um, as you say, that clean slate. I'm not sure how it fits with the rest of the MCU because the very next film we see Tony building suits again. Yeah. However, in sort of the arc of this film and in the, in the arc of this story, it is a very nice kind of closure. You know, the start of the film he's talking with, um, he seems distracted, they seem separated. All he's doing is tinkering and then it kind of nicely draws together those story elements um in kind of like that and and even in the name of the protocol it being clean slate it's like he's almost got this plan he's going to be starting again and it's kind of it's typical tony isn't it really it's everything to the extreme going from always working on these suits to absolutely all of them gone
0: yeah and then back again um with his iron legion with his ultron program I, I can also feel that tension, so I was hesitant to when I was about to describe it because I wasn't convinced how much he's changed. I, but I think that's also paralleled in, in John McClane's story as well. Uh, we don't need to discuss the die, other Die Hard films in great length, but there is this recurring theme of John and Holly being on the outs, even though they reconcile at the end of the first film. In, in the third film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, by the way... You can, when i told my partner we were doing going to watch die hard with a vengeance she thought we were going to watch die hard with avengers which kind of played into the inspiration for this episode
1: you think you're the only superhero in the world mr stark you become part of a bigger universe you just don't know it yet
0: but anyway kind of john and holly are separated again and so there is this kind of way in which perhaps it's more realistic than we usually see in the movies in which things normally get tied off happily in that actually the one-off big apology, the um, grand gesture doesn't usually solve relationship problems, doesn't mean that everything's going to be smooth sailing from now on, and actually takes time to go for it again and again. And I think we definitely see that in Tony's arc, more than in John's, because he he c- tends to go back and forth on it, uh, until the point where he finally manages to protect everybody.
1: Yeah, and and just that uh, building on what you were saying, the, uh, the the this idea that relationships are effort. It's not just this one event, this one big apology, this one big life experience that will define a relationship and, and we'll keep it strong. It's that constant input into the relationship to keep things ticking over, to keep things going.
0: Yeah, and keeping those relation, those conversations going, um, not clamming up again. So I think we're seeing quite a bit of connective tissue uh, from the relationship problems to even to things such as the giant stuffed animals, because John turns up to L.A. with a a giant stuffed bear. Not sure if that's for his daughter or for his wife, but it's there keeping Carlisle company in the limo through the movie. And Tony has his giant rabbit. But there's also the terrorist plot as well. Um, So on the one hand, we have Hans Gruber, who appears to be making an anti-capitalist stance but it's really after the bearer bonds in the vault. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. And then on the other hand, we have the Mandarin, who I think was always going to be a controversial character from the comics to adapt. Some people call me a terrorist. I consider myself a teacher. You know who I am. You don't know where I am. And you'll never see me coming. I don't know if you know much about
1: the the Mandarin in the original Iron Man comics? I only really found out about it when, uh, when the films came out because uh, I was intrigued at how this character, once I'd seen the film, how this character um, fitted into the, to the comics because it just didn't seem like something that the comics would do. So that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole of, uh, of research. Um, and I understand he's a very different character to, to the comics.
0: Yeah, I think one of the unfortunate things with uh, the original Marvel comics being from the the middle of the 60s, 70s, kind of the height of the Red Scare, is you got a lot of very stereotypical racist imagery, especially of Asian characters, and so um, the Mandarin was your typical yellow peril kind of character, and I think the movies rightfully wanted to steer away from that, but didn't necessarily always have the best handle on how to do that. So it was quite controversial where they gave us this kind of very bombastic, um, media savvy seeming terrorist leader who was almost in the mold of kind of Taliban meets Baptist preacher, as Tony says, but actually turned out to be Trevor. My name's Trevor, Trevor Slattery. It turned out to be just an actor, a puppet of the real villain, uh, Aldrich Killian. So on the one hand, that felt like a bit of a letdown, but I I think he was rather brilliant as well, especially as we've got to see Trevor Slattery uh, turn up in Shang-Chi as well. And in uh, other Marvel projects. And I think it I was listening to a good piece from I think it was Screen Crush. They were talking about how that approach was very much a very clever way of Aldrich Killian, the real villain, somewhat taking the post-9-11 terrorist fears and taking the kind of the um the media soundbite approach to terrorism. That was a lot of sound and fury. It it was a smoke show. It sounded scary. It correlated with these explosions, but it didn't actually mean anything. Um, the Mandarin would say that he's there to teach a lesson, and he would expound upon how hollow American culture was, uh, h- how... Um, the fortune cookies, which seem Chinese, are actually American, which is typical of them. is just hollow, dissatisfying, full of lies. But it's not really making a point of any kind. And that's similar to how Hans Gruber is in the movie. He says a lot of um, anti-capitalist rhetoric, but he doesn't mean uh,
1: any of it. No, in fact... From a capitalist perspective, he's doing his best to acquire wealth by any means necessary.
0: In both cases, we've got terrorists who are um, exploiting an image. Um, Hans is exploiting the image that of the organisations that he's worked with in the past because he was part of um, Cold War a terrorist group. And so he's, ex- he's leveraging that uh, to be a cover for what he's doing. And Aldrich Killian is exploiting uh, a terrorist group that we've seen was real in the Iron Man films.
1: And, and yeah, and so I can see that. And also there's also power in the, in the anonymity as well. Uh, Killian talks about uh, anonymity being a, a good asset of his. And again, Hans talks about uh, they they won't come looking for you if they think you're already dead. So that kind of although they're presenting this front on the one hand, actually, part of that power comes from them actually being anonymous as well.
0: So it's all sleight of hand, uh, getting you to look over here while the real action is happening over there. Yeah, I I think it's really clever.
1: And it's quite an interesting thing that the difference in the age of the films and the role that the media plays... I think Die Hard would perhaps be a very different film if smartphones and the internet were around in the 80s in a a more accessible way like these days.
0: Yeah, but it is interesting how the media are integral to the plot of the movie and to the villain's plot. I mean, I think what you see there, I think it's too early for the 24-hour news cycle, but you're... You've got the primetime news. You've got the roving reporters. You've got them capitalizing on a story. You've got them emotionally manipulating and exploiting people. I think in the middle of the scene that we just watched, um, this the main reporter had figured out John and Holly's connection, had gone to their house and had threatened their um, Holly's housekeeper with deportation if, he, if she didn't give them access to the children to get them on TV and emotionally exploit and manipulate them to emotionally manipulate the audience. And that villainy, that kind of lack of ethics and integrity is heightened in this situation where it causes Hans to make that fatal connection between Holly and John, who has been the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in his ass. So to speak. Um, And I think that really speaks to perhaps the fears and scepticism about the news at the time, but go forward uh, 24 years and we've got kind of the ever-present news cycle, we've got the kind of way which the media zooms in on things, and ha- constantly follows the people involved around because they're constantly having to fill 24 hours of news and trying to find new angles and the way in which it's actually rather unhealthy um, just in terms of the mental health of us as a viewing public because we're const- if we turn on Sky24, if we turn on CNN or whatever, we're constantly being exposed to hours and hours of this. And then, as you mentioned, through our smartphones, there's constant updates on things like COVID, on things like Brexit shortages and things like that here in the States or so the latest political, sorry, here in the UK and political crises and, and discord in the States and elsewhere.
1: Yeah. And I guess that uh, scene in Die Hard where he is at that house, that, that getting that story at any expense and it's bad news sells it's uh that's nothing new um and and that kind of exponential that um the the idea that it's got exponentially worse since since die hard to where we are now
0: but whereas actually the reality is uh, as the media has got exponentially more intense in how it portrays bad news stories um and more ever-present the reality is, in the past 60, 70 years, instances of violence, whether it's personal um, or political, you know, global, have actually decreased. And so the news kind of feeds into this false impression. And I wonder, not not to bite the hand that feeds us, but I wonder if these action movies also play into that as well, this idea that there are The world is full of evil villains. I I know we know this is a heightened reality, but I think some of it must permeate the collective um, subconscious.
1: Maybe. Maybe.
0: What I do know, though, is very, very satisfying where Holly lands the last punch in the movie, socking that reporter squarely on the jaw. And while I wouldn't condone (laughs) violence, of that kind of real life, you know, can fully understand her upset, her anger, because of the way not just putting John and herself in danger, but exploiting her children. It, it's so satisfying. Absolutely. And I don't know if you spotted this, James, but you, who gets the last punch in the climatic fight in Iron Man 3?
1: Oh, it is Pepper, isn't it? It's Pepper.
0: In fact, Pepper's even more proactive because she's taking on the main villain of the piece, the um, the creep who has stalked her, essentially, kidnapped her, and subjected her to torture and biological experimentation. So, I mean, Pe- I think Pepper in herself, um, Holly is described as hard as nails, and she is a brilliantly tough minded, no compromises kind of person, but Pepper, even though she is a similarly high flying executive type, she has a much gentler personality, and she acknowledges it, kind of just how violent that all was and how it doesn't sit comfortably with her. She did what she needed to do, but, but I did not like that, it seems to be her reaction.
1: Oh, my God.
0: That was really violent.
1: Which is interesting compared to her role in Endgame, where she is actually suiting up with everybody else. Yeah,
0: um, as the Armoured Hero rescue. And I think maybe the, that kind of defensive nature to the name rescue that she's given in the comics i don't think she's ever called that in the films but i think that's probably a clue to why she is suiting up it's not about uh, so much attacking as it is about protecting both she and tony at that point have a daughter to look after and a world to defend and i guess just acknowledging sometimes we have to make the hard choices and to struggle in ways that we rather wouldn't in defense of the ones we care about. It seems like there is quite a lot of connective tissue between these two seemingly disparate movies. On the one hand, Tony and John are about as different in stations of life as two people could be. Tony was born into riches, he is very educated, he is very technically literate, He is all about technology while John is much more the caveman um, probably by his own admission you know he hates the touchscreen access point in the Nakatomi building in other movies he complains about cell phones and things but they're both got that kind of rugged kind of individual mindset they're both very resourceful as well and um, that's the one thing I really noticed about Iron Man that I thought at first could of made it similar to Die Hard, the way in which Tony has is forced to rely not on his suits, but on his own wits to survive.
1: Yeah, I think they are both from that self reliance and and also the, the the kind of observation that they both have from just using what's around, whether that's Tony using in Iron Man one the just the stuff that's in the cave or in Iron Man three he's totally away from all his usual uh, equipment and just building with what he has it's it's a theme all the way through and like in Die Hard John using the the hose pipe off the building uh, using a- improvised weapons in several of the the altercations just using what's right. and even noticing I was reading something about uh the scene where him and Hans meet before the end and he had a suspicion that um something wasn't quite right about Hans and what had uh tipped him off was they're all wearing the same wristwatch. Oh right, was that it? I I could never quite figure that out. So there there's apparently been cut from the film a scene where They're all synchronizing watches and it's all the same brand and model of watch. And of course, John previously had searched all the other bodies. So with that observation skill, he's got to kind of figure things out.
0: That's brilliant. And you know, um, that reminds me of something my partner said. She, uh, when we were watching Iron Man 3 the other night, she pointed out that the plots in both feature watches quite heavily. This this is perhaps more of a superficial um, point because it's not the, they're not getting the same use. But I think she's got got a good point because it's a watch that saves Holly's life um, at the end of the building. Gruber's dying; he's kind of pitched backwards out of the movie, but he's still holding onto Holly. He's grabbing onto the to the Rolex watch that Holly's colleague the the slimy ellis was showing off at the beginning of the movie the symbol of kind of prestige and capitalism and it's just simply by unhooking the watch and letting hans fall that holly is saved and hans meets his iconic ending whereas in iron man 3 instead of a rolex we've got a beautiful dora the explorer watch that harley keener the i think 12 year old um protege of tony stark who when they meet in tennessee he he gives it, him his little sister's dora the explorer watch and tony's not impressed but he does warn the villain who destroys the watch who takes watch off him and destroys it that that was a friend's isn't there a line in there as well about
1: it being limited edition yes
0: that's right that's right kind of t- tony tony's just constantly got the snark, the wit going on Uh is just brilliant. Uh, but I feel like I kind of distracted us a bit. What were we talking about before the watch? Because, uh, I, um you, oh, it was a self-reliance. So, yeah, so both got that power of observation. That's brilliant. They both can rely on what they find. Of course, the uh scene shortly after the one we've just watched, John is captured and he's... T- taken to hans but he's got a gun an extra gun strapped to his back just with some wrapping tape which is brilliant very down to earth but then tony creates things like uh, christmas tree bauble grenades and um he uses an electric current run through an oven mitt to incapacitate people and he does a similar thing near the end of Iron Man 3 where he goes around the Mandarin's compound and one by one inca- incapacitates all these villains and I was also reading something where actually it's that push to be self-reliant that seems to be Tony's salvation at the beginning of the movie he's really struggling with that PTSD from the incident in New York and um, he was having panic attacks and Do you remember the scene in the restaurant where he has a panic attack and he goes outside climbs inside the Iron Man suit? And even though you'd think that would be claustrophobic, it actually is a security to him. And I think it demonstrates that he's become overly reliant on his technology, the things that he has built, instead of the creative spark inside of him that gives him that ability. It's in being pushed to go down back to basics and pushed to rely on his wits that Harley actually says you're the mechanic aren't you build something that actually gives him the impetus to overcome his stress his anxiety to save the day and also to make that um, final gesture for Pepper of destroying all his suits you know He may come back to the suits in a future movie, but I don't think he ever reverts to that state of relying on them in the same way.
1: As in relying on them as that sort of comfort and.
0: Yeah, a crutch of some kind. I think there is, so there is, on the one hand, the self reliance of both characters. They're both forced to rely on themselves. John's away from his police department. He's feeling quite isolated. The LAPD are not taking his call seriously. But he does make alliances from the start. He he makes a connection with Carlisle. Um, As much as he tries to kind of ignore Carlisle, Carlisle is very kind of open, very high energy, and very considerate, saying that he's going to keep going to wait for John, he's going to hook him up with a hotel room if things don't work out with Holly. Uh, And that actually even though John doesn't see it, that works to his advantage because when Carlisle realises that he's trapped down in the garage he starts to do his part to take out the terrorists um, by kind of removing one of their escape vehicles. Absolutely. And then of course there is a brilliant Sergeant Al Powell and I just think beyond the practical support Al is giving John, I think one thing you touched upon earlier in the show is just he's there for him in a very empathetic way. They're they're both very working class, kind of uh, feet on the street kind of cops. They both see things from that level. And so it at once means they can relate to each other, but it also means that... Al knows what he's doing when he's standing up for Johnny, saying this man is tired. He's hurting. He needs to know that we're there for him when he stands up to him, to the kind of higher ups, to the officers.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And of course, Tony makes connections. He makes connections with Harley, as we mentioned, the boy whose garage he crashes. Um, He makes this connection with Gary, the AV tech on the local TV station, because Tony needs Gary, and Gary needs t- Tony. <laughs> also, there's the one friend that he's had through all his movies, even though he has worn different faces, depending on the actor playing him, and that, of course, is Rhodey. And I, I felt that, although this is probably something that's worth basing an entire episode around, at another point where we have more more time to talk about it and probably a guest with greater insight to sh- to talk about it with but there's very much this action movie trope all the way from i think um the 70s midnight run um up to the present day with kind of the black best friend and uh, and it's in other movies as well but i think it's it's definitely here where there's this danger of tokenism
1: yeah And perhaps it might be better explored by someone with a little more insight than two white men.
0: Indeed. Yeah. I think it's probably just worth noting. um, I think worth noting as well that both characters, I think, are brilliant. And I think both could be leading men in their own right. If these movies were just written a bit differently, could either lead the movie or be a co-lead.
1: There is a whole discussion around representation which we probably don't have time to get into today.
0: Maybe it's a good moment to say if any of our listeners want to write to us with their thoughts on representation, that would be a a great thing to do. We'd love to hear from you on any of the themes that you spot in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whether it be the ones we've discussed already, grief and family, or the ones we're going to look at, like hope and disability and representation, or... If you just want to kind of weigh in on what what you've heard us say in this episode, have we missed anything? I know that we could have possibly talked about Hawkeye, the new TV show, and how that could be a similar kind of diehard story, albeit in a different way um just as as a note for our listeners, we're actually recording this early in December, so we've only watched two episodes. we didn't really feel like we could comment on whether Hawkeye or is or isn't a diehard story despite what the trailers show but if you have have seen all episodes and you want to comment by all means let us know and i'll put the details on how you can contact us in the show notes james shall we briefly talk about the stan lee moment in iron man 3 yes let i mean it's got to be really brief hasn't it because the scene itself is i think it was just nine seconds
1: something like that very very short yeah would you mind mentioning what it was? So in the in the film, uh, the characters end up at a beauty pageant in which Stan Lee is one of the judges. And he, all we see of him is him just very enthusiastically
0: holding up a scorecard saying 10, which we have to assume is the highest score. So he just looks very happy to be there. On the one hand, that's great because it's always... Good to see Stan, and he always seems really happy to be in the movies. But I, I'll be honest and say I was a bit disappointed with this scene because it, it really seemed to be portraying Stanley as an old lech, um, an old man ogling uh, young beauty contestants, which is not very flattering
1: for anybody. No, I think there was a lot of disappointment. In the cameo, generally, if I remember rightly, Stan Lee had sent out a message saying this was one of his best cameos. And so then suddenly there was this great disappointment with, with actually how it appeared in the film.
0: Yes. And I think from what I understand, he wasn't actually even thinking of this scene because there was more footage that he'd film and unbeknownst to him, the film had been cut for time. And that ended up on the cutting room floor, so I said it maybe as disappointing as it is on several regards um and disappointingly sexist, is perhaps good to know that Stanley was disappointed along with the rest of us?
1: yeah, yeah, that's helpful to know
0: in our previous episodes, we've had a mindful moment in the m c u where we have used the ancient monastic practice of Florilegia. For those of you who aren't familiar with this it's a big word for a very simple practice where essentially you take a quote, traditionally, it would be from a book, but we've been doing it with the movies. James and I each choose a quote that stood out to us on the theme of the episode. And we read them out, we say what they mean to us, and then we kind of place them together and see if that changes our understanding of them. Now, because this episode is a bit different, this this is our Die Hard in the MCU Christmas special, our approach is a little bit different. So, James, I believe you've chosen a quote from
1: Iron Man 3, and I've got one from Die Hard. So would you like to read your quote? So at near the very end of the movie, Tony is giving a voiceover to some of the things that are happening and his thoughts behind them. So he says, you start with something pure, something exciting, then comes the mistakes, the compromises. And that really resonates with where I am at the moment with this starting off this new podcast thing. Uh, It is, we've got this idea that we're always aiming for this the best podcast we can and this kind of pure this pure breaking it down into this idea that we've got that we can make this this really good podcast that I'm not sure anyone else is doing something quite like this and then as we start off going it is very exciting but not necessarily as good as I could be making mistakes along the way we're making compromises to to get things done and actually I find that statement quite positive because actually what we are aiming for is something pure something exciting but we don't necessarily always quite get there in the way we want
0: thank you for sharing that and quite where it sits with you right now um for my part I think sometimes mistakes the The adjustments you make, I I think compromises can come across as a dirty word. But I think when you think about it, we've talked about how compromise is necessary, even if we haven't used the word. John and Holly are both two very strong-willed opinionated people, and they have to find a way to compromise. I think Tony and Pepper are very different personalities, but they, they also compromise as well. Tony... Learned to chill out a bit, uh, to put it mildly, and to make space for Pepper alongside his world saving. And Pepper doesn't expect any less from Tony, but she also comes to understand and even own his his heroics and get in on them herself. So I, I think I my hope is that any adjustments we make along the way will make it even more our project here, even more unique and unusual.
1: Um,
0: yeah. Here's hoping.
1: Here's hoping.
0: Um, so my quote is from um, the Die Hard movie. And it's at a point where Holly is still part of the ca- larger captive group. She doesn't really know what's going on with John. She's aware that he's somewhere in the building, but they've also heard a lot of gunfire. Um So there's that worry for him if he's still alive, as well as her her worry for the other um, hostages that she's part of. But then one of the terrorists walks through the area where the hostages are seated, and Holly's personal assistant Ginny says, that man looks really pissed. And Holly says, he's still alive. Ginny says, what? And Holly says, only john can drive somebody that crazy and it's just that line only john can drive somebody that crazy and the way that it's delivered in that you can tell from the relationship john has driven holly up the wall at times he is a maddeningly arrogant and misogynistic person he he expects her to be the stay-at-home wife and kind of he pulls away when she isn't and decides to go after her own career and she infuri- she's infuriated by him and infuriates him and I think even though there are different personalities involved I'm, I'm sure all of us who have been in a relationship or who are in a relationship can recognise that real frustration with other people no matter how much we love them but The way it's delivered is just a real appreciation. First that he's a it means that he's alive and annoying the hell out of the terrorists, to put it mildly. But also just there's I think a warmth and affection that just she has for the way that he he annoys other people. Um that can be really hard to put into words. Um I don't know if you know Re- recognize this in yourself, James. Uh, but, you know, I know all the ways that my partner and I get frustrated with each other, but yet there's that undercurrent of affection, regardless. Kind of, it's a funny line and it's a strange line, but I find it really encouraging and uh, very normal and very lovely in its normality.
1: Yeah. Very lovely in its normality in the midst of what is quite an extraordinary situation.
0: Yeah. I I mean, and that's really what I love about these kind of movies and especially about superheroes as well. The kind of mundanity in the midst of um, the amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that.
0: And also the amazing in the midst of the mundane. So let's take these two quotes again. Uh, James I'll ask you to read yours and then I'll read mine I'll consider how and if they mean anything new Take on a new light, juxtapose together And it's okay if they don't because this is just an experiment really
1: You start with something pure
0: Something exciting Then come the mistakes
1: The compromises only John can drive somebody that crazy. So for me, in putting those together, you can kind of apply that pure and exciting thing to relationships. I don't know when when I first got together with my wife, we had this idea that it was, you know, in the start of every relationship, I think, there's there's something, this underlying thing that you're kind of, or well, in my experience, chasing after this sort of unknown element of, what it is, this, this relationship, it's pure, it's exciting. And then all relationships seem, as I say, compromises, you're learning from your mistakes. Yeah. I, I've got to admit, my mind went to a very similar place.
0: Thinking back to the beginning of my relationship with my partner. Exactly. You start with something pure, something exciting, Um, something that seems perfect, but you get, then there comes the mistakes, the compromises, the things you, you can't take back, and uh, the things that will always remain spoken, the trusts are hard to mend once they're broken, but I think that it, more than the words, the feeling with which they're delivered, the words where um, only John can drive somebody that crazy, the affection they're spoken with, makes me realise that even in the failure, and I think it's okay to call it failure, even in the mistakes, even where things have gone dreadfully wrong, where your patterns of relationship need drastic work, I think that there can still be that warmth, that affection, and I, I think if you let it, and if you find a way to make it work, those very things that drive you crazy you can come to love and find that they're all part and parcel of this thing that you can't live without. I think it puts it in mind of something the vision said again, because r- really, h- how can you talk about kind of wit and wisdom in the MCU without thinking about the vision? But he, he said there's grace in their failings. I think that applies to this too.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Well, this has been really interesting. I wasn't at all sure when we discussed this experiment of bringing a diehard movie and a Marvel movie together and comparing them where it, it would go. But I think there's some kind of really interesting and exciting possibilities come out of it. Um, all that remains to be said is thank you, James, for joining me for this podcast. And we also want to thank David Shaw, who created our epic theme, The Moment Has Come. Ella Grace, who proofreads and corrects the transcripts for each episode. AJ, the soundest guy, who is editing this episode. And most of all, we want to thank you, our listeners. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please do hit like, subscribe and or follow, and all buttons of that nature, wherever you're listening to this. And I believe if you're listening to Apple Podcasts, it really helps if you leave us five stars and a review. It really does make all the difference. Goodbye, everyone.
1: Goodbye.